Beautiful. Thank you so much. I want to take you back um, just for a very few moments this evening uh, to the text that uh, Cody read as he opened up our service this evening. Only going to read you a portion of that. Uh, we read these words in Luke chapter 2. Uh, so Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem town of David because he belonged to the house and the lineage of David and he went there to register with Mary who was pledged to be married to him and she of course was expecting a child and while they were there as we know that's why we're here celebrating the time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn a son and wrapped him in claws she placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds that lived out in the field. And they were keeping watch over their flocks at night. The angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were terrified, but the angel said, don't be afraid for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior, which is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was this great company of heavenly hosts that appeared with the angel. They were praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that happened, which the Lord told us about. And they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph. They found the baby lying in a manger. It's one of the richest and most beautiful texts, I think, in all of the Gospels. It's probably one of the most often read. I don't know how it was in your house growing up, but it always was in our house. On Christmas Eve, we would sit, and before we opened the first present, my dad would pull out his copy of Scripture, and he would read this text. He still does it to this day. He'll do it tomorrow afternoon as well as the family now all gathers on Christmas Day instead of Christmas Eve. The pinnacle of this story, of course, it's not just the shepherds, it's not the wise men that come in Matthew, it's not the angels. The pinnacle of the story is the birth of Jesus Christ, the Savior, our Lord. That night, the plan of God that had been determined before the foundation of the world was played out. Everything happened just like God planned it would happen. And it all happened in this little city called Bethlehem. If you were to go to Bethlehem today, you would find approximately 60,000 people that live in and around the broader Bethlehem area. That population is divided primarily between Christians and Muslims. The Christians that are there are predominantly Orthodox believers. That area, Bethlehem, is under the control of the Palestinian Authority and has been since 1995. Bethlehem has experienced almost chaotic growth, constant flow of tourism over the last few decades. It's home to one of the most sacred Christian sites in the world, that which was built by Constantine the Great in 330 AD, the Church of the Nativity which still stands over a cave that was believed to be the very spot Jesus was born. And the place of the manger is marked by a 14-point star that is called the Star of Bethlehem. 
That's what you would find if you went there today. But what about 2,000 years ago? James Coaster said 2,000 years ago, Bethlehem, Nazareth, and Calvary were all pretty ordinary. In fact, they were so ordinary, they were ignored, forgotten, and largely hidden from the rest of the world. He goes on to say, yet it was in these ignored, forgotten, hidden places, marked not by wealth and power, but by poverty and isolation, that God chose to come among us. Not in deeds of wonder and power, but in the ordinary, hushed cries of a tiny baby and the deep groans of a broken, dying, defeated man. You see, Bethlehem was not a coincidence. It was a place of great importance. It was the place that God had ordained for his son to be born. Bethlehem had been in the past a place of great sorrow. It was the burial place of Rachel. If you know the Old Testament text at all, you know that Rachel was the favorite wife of Jacob the patriarch. He had two, Rachel and Leah. He had worked hard for Rachel. Rachel did not come to him easily. Her father Laban required a very heavy price, 14 years of labor. And so Jacob took Rachel, his beloved wife, Rachel was the mother of his favorite son, Joseph. He's the one that Jacob gave that coat of many colors to, if you know the biblical story. She was also the mother to Benjamin, which was Jacob's last son. As a matter of fact, as Jacob was traveling with his beloved wife, Rachel, and they were traveling from Bethel to Bethlehem, she went into labor in the city of Ramah, which is just 11 miles outside of Bethlehem. And her labor was very hard. Her midwife tried to comfort her and said, you're gonna have a son. And so they, in her labor, she and the midwife named that son, ultimately named Benjamin. But as she gave birth to Benjamin, Rachel died. And so there in Ramah, just outside of Bethlehem, Rachel was buried. Here's how it's recorded in scripture. So Rachel died and she was buried on the way to Ephrah, that is Bethlehem. And over her tomb, Jacob set a pillar. And to this day, that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. It would be 800 years later that Rachel's descendants, the offspring of her own children, were driven out of their homeland. The ones in the north were driven to Assyria. The ones in the south were driven to Babylon and they were all in exile. Jeremiah who prophesied during that time captured the agony of the long buried Rachel for her own. When he wrote these words in Jeremiah 31, he said, this is what the Lord says, a cry is heard in Ramah, deep anguish and bitter weeping. Rachel is still weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted for her children are gone. They're scattered. They've left the homeland. Bethlehem had been a place of great sorrow, but it had also been a place of abounding sin. The book of Judges is one of the most horrific books in all the Bible. The sinfulness of humanity is highlighted time and time again, more than in any other Old Testament book. In fact, the Bible says in the book of Judges, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Not a whole lot different than the world in which we live today. 
Everybody's doing their own thing. That's what they were doing in the book of Judges. And when everybody does their own thing without respect for a God, things get out of control. And there was such sinfulness, such immorality, such godlessness that appeared in the book of Judges. The two stories that bring the book of Judges to a close mark some of the most hideous sin and immorality probably our world has ever known. You can read it in Judges 17, 18, and 19. It includes the cruelest of violence and the ugliness of human depravity. And guess what? Both of those stories took place in Bethlehem. It's a place of dark ugliness, place of abounding sin, a place of sorrow, but Bethlehem had also been a place of dark and desperate famine. About the time the book of Judges ends, there's another story that emerges. And it begins dark, just like the book of Judges ended. It's the book of Ruth. There's this family that's living in Bethlehem, which by the way means the house of bread. It's how the book of Ruth opens. Elimelech is the father, his name means my God is my king. Naomi is the mother, her name means pleasantness. They had two sons, Malon and Kilion. But in Bethlehem, there was a famine. There was no more bread. Everybody was starving to death. And so Elimelech said to Naomi, if we're going to live and save our family, we're going to take our sons, Malon and Kilion, and we're going to leave Bethlehem. I know it's our home, but we're going to leave it and we'll travel to Moab because there, there was food. And so the family left Bethlehem, the house of bread, where there was famine, and they went to Moab to find food. There they not only found food, but the two young men grew up in Moab, Malon and Kilion did, and they married two Moabite wives, forbidden by the Jewish law. Their names were Orpah and Ruth. The tragedy struck that family while they were in Moab, Elimelech died. And then one after the other, Malon and Kilion both died as well. And so now it's just Naomi in a foreign land with her two Moabite daughters-in-law. And she said, I'm gonna go home. I'm going back to Bethlehem. I hear there's bread there now. And there's no reason for you to go back to Judah with me. You'll not be able to find husbands. And so you stay here. Orpah said, okay, I'll stay here. Ruth said, no, I'm gonna go. And so desperate, lost in a land in which she did not belong. Naomi left this place and headed back to Bethlehem, which had been a place of desperate famine with her daughter-in-law, Ruth. But it's at that point in the story that Bethlehem also becomes a place of renewed hopefulness because Naomi, having gotten word that there was food back in Bethlehem and having bid Orpah farewell, she and Ruth travel back. When they come back, the people, the ladies in the city see Naomi and they say, Naomi is returned. She said, don't call me Naomi. That means pleasantness. Call me Mara. That means bitter because the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Ruth and Naomi had no way to make ends meet. Naomi was too old to work. So Ruth went out into the fields and she gleaned. The Israelite law said they were supposed to drop some of the harvest on the corners so that the poor people could pick them up. And so Ruth went out and she started gleaning from that harvest. 
Unbeknownst to her, she was gleaning from the field of a man by the name of Boaz, who was actually related to Elimelech, who had passed away. And there was this, there was this Israelite law that said if a man died, and he didn't have any sons, and his sons had died, so he had no one to carry on his lineage, then a close relative could marry the widow so that the family name could be carried on. So all of a sudden, God had ordered this, and this Moabite woman is gleaning at the field of this man who is a relative to Elimelech, who had no one to carry on his name. The only problem was there was one closer relative that had to have the first opportunity. And he said, no. And so Boaz said, I will be what is called your Goel, G-O-E-L. Means kinsman, relative redeemer. And he married through what the Jews know as a leveret marriage. He married Ruth so that the name could be carried on from Elimelech. Ruth and Boaz had a son. Matthew records it this way, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, and Rahab begot Obed by Ruth, and Obed begot Jesse, and look who Jesse begot. Jesse begot David, who was the king. And you all know who came from the lineage of David, Mary and Joseph, went to Bethlehem to be registered because they were of the house and lineage of David. You see, the sorrow, the sin, the famine of Bethlehem was being turned around. Hope was emerging from their devastation. 700 years before Christ was even born, the prophet Micah said this was going to be happen, happening. He said in Micah 5, You, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, you're only a small village among all the people, yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past will come from you on my behalf. And he came in the form of a little baby born in Bethlehem to very young parents. And so they went, this young couple, to Bethlehem to register for the census. You ever wonder what that trip looked like? James Strange, New Testament professor at the University of South Florida, said Joseph's and Mary, Joseph and Mary's hardships would have begun more than a week before the birth of their son when they had to leave their home in Nazareth in the northern highlands of Galilee to register for a Roman census. They had to travel 90 miles to the city of Joseph's ancestors south along the flatlands of the Jordan River and then west over the hills surrounding Jerusalem and then on to Bethlehem. It was a fairly grueling trip, Strange said, who annually leads a team, an excavation team there. Strange estimates that Mary and Joseph likely would have traveled only 10 miles a day, though normally they would travel 20 miles a day, but the road was uphill and downhill. It was not simple. And because of her impending delivery, 10 miles would have been a stretch. And the trip through Judean desert would have taken place during the winter when it's in the 30s during the day and rains, it's nasty and miserable. And at night it would be freezing. So to protect themselves from the inclement weather, Mary and Joseph would have likely worn heavy woolen cloaks constructed to shed rain and snow under their cloaks. The ancient residents wore long robes, belted at the waist, tube-like socks and enclosed shoes would protect their feet. 
And the unpaved, hilly trails and harsh weather were not the only hazards Mary and Joseph would have faced on their journey. One of the most terrifying dangers in the ancient Palestine was the heavily forested valley of the Jordan River. Lions and bears lived in the woods and travelers had to fend off wild boars. Archaeologists have unearthed documents warning travelers of the forest dangers and bandits, pirates of the deserts. Robbers were almost common hazards along the major trade routes that Mary and Joseph would have traveled. Threat of outlaws forced solitary travelers to seek out caravans for protection. But there they went, 10 miles a day for more than a week. And when they arrived, there was no room. In the end, the Greek word is kataluma, means probably most likely guest room. It's likely they were hoping to stay with relatives, but that room was filled. So they had to move to the lower level of a residence where the animals were kept, and that's likely where Jesus was born. Among the animals in Bethlehem, a Savior was born. A Savior who would one day replace sorrow with joy, who would one day provide grace for abounding sin, Savior who would one day become the bread of life for the famine-stricken world. That Savior was born 2,000 years ago, and He is the reason we are here tonight. We're thankful that He was born, but as Corey Tenboom said so well, if Jesus were born 1,000 times in Bethlehem and not in me, I would still be lost, for only Jesus can satisfy. Oswald Chambers said it this way, the man or woman who does not know God demands an infant satisfaction from other human beings which they cannot give. No one else can do what Jesus only can do for you. And in the case of the man, he becomes tyrannical and cruel. It springs from this one thing, the human heart must have satisfaction, but there's only one being who can satisfy the lost abyss of the human heart, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me close with this story. Dr. Tony Evans tells the story. One year at Christmas time, he said, my wife wanted some wrapped boxes to use for decoration, so she took eight empty boxes. She wrapped them up to use decoration for decoration at the front door. They sat in front of our house perfectly wrapped. They were beautiful. They were topped with bows, but they were empty. Evans said, I, I didn't worry about a thief coming by and stealing one of those because there was nothing in them. And he ends by saying a lot of folks are well-wrapped, but there's nothing on the inside. Unfortunately, today, many people don't know what it means to be truly blessed. They just want to be well-wrapped. True, authentic Christian living starts on the inside and an evidence works its way out in a life that is beautiful, not only on the outside, but on the inside as well. So we come to the communion table on Christmas, yes. Why do we take communion on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day? Jay Sidlow Baxter said, separate Christmas Day from Good Friday and Christmas is doomed. Doomed to decay into a merely sentimental or superstitious or sensuous eat, drink, and be merry festivity of December. Bethlehem and Golgotha, the manger and the cross, the birth and the death must always be seen together if the real Christian is to survive with all of its profound inspirations. For the Son of Man came not to be ministered to, 
but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Father, tonight, we thank you for Bethlehem. That was your plan. And Lord, we thank you that uh, that plan also included a cross just a little over three decades later. And we bring the two together tonight and thank you that you were willing to come according to the plan of God and give your life a ransom for us. Thank you that you can still turn sorrow into joy. You can still turn abounding sin into grace. You can still turn famine into plenty because it all happens to the person of Jesus Christ, your son.